High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're investigating a story of madness and misrepresentation. It's a story that begins in the Depression-era Pacific Northwest, weaves through 1930s and 40s Hollywood, fades out and then is resurrected in the 70s and 80s. Along the way, we'll touch on all manner of luminaries and institutions. Cary Grant, Howard Hawks, Mel Brooks, Kenneth Anger, the Santa Monica Police Department, Scientology, but the only logical place to start telling this convoluted tale is way, way back in the 1990s. Yes, I'm relieving, now that you're leaving, soon as you You're listening to Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle the fifth track on In Utero, the 1993 final studio album released by the band Nirvana. The 
title of the song refers to the actress Frances Farmer, who was a gorgeous and unusually bright and outspoken starlet who had briefly been Hollywood and Broadway's next big thing in the 1930s, even as she openly disdained the movie world's shoddy products and culture of artifice. Then, in 1942, a drunk driving arrest led to Farmer's involuntary incarceration in a Seattle asylum, from which she didn't emerge until 1950. At that point, she had been gone for so long, and her rep had been so wrecked by the giddy, often distorted media coverage of her trouble that it was impossible to resurrect her career. In his lyrics, Nirvana's Kurt Cobain conjured a vision of the return of the repressed, in which Farmer, whose struggles to assert her basic civil rights Cobain likens to the Salem witch trials, comes back from the dead and burns all the liars who conspired to squash her spirit in life. Come back as fire to burn all the liars, leave a blanket of ass Kurt Cobain was the biggest rock star in the world when this song was released. He was also a heroin addict and something of a recluse who was incredibly uncomfortable with the size of his fame. The more famous he became, the more paranoid he became. In virtually all of the interviews Cobain reluctantly submitted to around the time of In Utero, he spoke about the connection he, and particularly his wife, Courtney Love, felt to Francis Farmer, who as the Cobain saw it, had been run out first of Seattle and then from Hollywood just for being loud and messy and shitty at dealing with authority all qualities proudly shared by Mrs. Courtney Love Cobain. Journalists were a rapt audience for the king and queen of grunge, even or maybe especially after Lynn Hirschberg's 1992 Vanity Fair profile of love, which alleged that Mrs. Cobain had taken heroin while pregnant. This allegedly inaccurate story sparked Cobain to publicly lend his support to the organization FAIR, or Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And more cataclysmically, for those looking to profit from access to him, Cobain also cut way back on doing interviews. The lucky few who did get to interview Cobain breathlessly reiterated Cobain's version of Francis Farmer's sad and sordid tale, summed up as a journey from teenage atheism to lefty activism, a stab at playing the Hollywood game drowned out in boozy ballsiness, her refusal to conform punished by institutionalizations, and finally, lobotomy. Here's how Cobain detailed Farmer's struggles to the British rock mag Melody Maker in 1993. She was institutionalized numerous times, and in the place in Washington where she ended up, the custodians had people lining up all the way through the halls waiting to rape her. She'd been beaten up and brutally raped for years every day. She didn't even have clothes most of the time. I mean, from being this glamorous, talented, well-respected movie star, she ended up being given a lobotomy. Cobain recommended a book called Shadowland, a biography of Farmer written by William Arnold. When I was reading this book, I realized that this could very well happen to Courtney if things kept going on. People can be driven insane. They can, they can be given lobotomies and be committed and be put in jails for no reason. Kurt, Courtney, and various reporters made similar allusions in countless other publications. It was a mutually beneficial association. By putting their own struggles with the media and corporate gatekeepers of creativity in the historical context of quote-unquote St. Francis, Kurt and Courtney nominated themselves to the pantheon of not just rock and roll casualty, but Hollywood tragedy. And this was before the truly tragic event that would unavoidably recast their bodies of work and reshape the details of their personal lives into myth. At the same time, their taking up of the Francis Farmer cause gave a shot in the arm to Farmer's legacy. It recast this long-gone star from half-forgotten Hollywood cautionary tale into punk rock martyr, and it reanimated her legend for a new generation. 
there's just one problem. The version of Francis Farmer's story that the Cobains felt so connected to was unbeknownst to them based on fiction. Join us, won't you, as we explore the printing of the legend of Francis Farmer. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Here's what we know to be true about Frances Farmer. She grew up in Seattle, the only daughter of a lawyer and a domineering crusading mother. Frances Farmer's first brush with infamy came when she was a teenager, and she won an essay contest for a composition she had titled God Dies, in which she outlined her inability to put much faith in a deity who would answer her mundane prayers while letting innocent people die. God was gone. Why couldn't they see it? It still puzzles me. The essay became a local scandal. You're going straight to hell, Francis Farmer! The experience of being made a teenage pariah in her hometown made Francis long to get away. She enrolled as a drama student at the University of Washington, where she lived the typical quasi-Bohemian theater school life, learning how to get drunk, passionately studying the teachings of Stanislavski. She longed to move to New York to work with the group theater, which in the early 30s was emerging as a brand name in both method acting and social consciousness. But like everyone else, she was broke, and a cross-country bus ticket seemed beyond her wildest dreams. Then in 1933, Farmer won a contest sponsored by a local communist newspaper. The prize was a trip to Russia. As much as Farmer was fascinated by Russian theater, she was more interested in the fact that the boat that would take her to the Red Mecca would embark from Manhattan. On the way back from Russia, Farmer cashed in the bus ticket that would have taken her home to Seattle and started making the rounds of New York casting agencies. Soon she was offered a standard starlet contract with Paramount. She wanted to be a stage actress, not a movie star, but she needed the money and she rationalized that Hollywood success could pave the way for what she really wanted to do. Things started out okay. Farmer arrived in Los Angeles on her 22nd birthday. She was swiftly sham married to another Paramount contract player, the future Leif Erikson, and given the Devigur glamour girl treatment. She starred in two big hits in her first couple of years in town, a Bing Crosby musical, Rhythm on the Range, and Come and Get It, initially directed by Howard Hawks. Farmer eagerly soaked up Hawks' mentorship, but when he was fired from the film, Farmer openly rebelled against his replacement, William Wyler. In general, she bristled against the life of a Hollywood contract player, the attendant fakery and fawning that it inspired. Jessica Lange played Farmer in the 1982 biopic Francis, and in this scene, early in the film, Francis is greeted sycophantically. Oh, Miss Farmer, I can't tell you how proud I am to meet you. Excuse me. Yes? Haven't we met before? No, I don't believe so. Weren't you the one that damned me straight to hell? Oh, no, my dear. You must be mistaken. <laughs> Bullshit. I beg your pardon? 
I'm the same girl that wrote the essay, same girl that went to Russia. You folks aren't pleased to meet me at all. In 1937, after co-starring with Cary Grant in the god-awful period piece The Toast of New York, Farmer was tired of taking weak supporting parts in mediocre at best movies, and in breach of her contract with Paramount, she went back east to act on the stage. She made good on her dream to work with a group theater, starring in Clifford Odets' Golden Boy on Broadway. Then Farmer, still technically married, fell into a passionate affair with the playwright who had his own actress wife overseas. The press, which had branded her as difficult almost from the jump, gleefully gossiped about the dalliance. But Frances didn't give a shit. For the first time in her life, she was creatively fulfilled and in love. At the end of the highly successful New York run of Golden Boy, Farmer planned to travel with the show and her new boyfriend to London. But Odette's decided to stay with his wife, dumping Frances via a two-line telegram. And the group theater decided to give Farmer's role to another actress, an actress who would help them foot the bill for the London production. Heartbroken and incensed by what she saw as the hypocrisy of the lefty group theater chasing a payday, Farmer returned to Hollywood in 1940 and found diminishing returns. In July 1942, her husband divorced her, and later that month, Frances Farmer was arrested for driving drunk without a license, with her brights on in a wartime dim-out zone. She resisted arrest, was dragged to the Santa Monica jail, and was given a suspended sentence of 180 days in jail and a $250 fine. She was ordered to quit drinking. She didn't quit drinking, and she didn't pay the fine or report to her parole officer. And a few months later, the court issued a warrant for her arrest. They got a chance to serve the warrant when Francis got in a fight with a hairdresser on the set of a movie, then returned to the Knickerbocker Hotel, had a few drinks and took a sleeping pill, and passed out in her room. The cops banged on Francis's hotel room door and, when she didn't answer, barged in to find the actress naked, hiding behind a shower curtain. Again, they hauled her into jail, kicking and screaming, locked her up for the night without offering her a phone call or a lawyer. The next day, she appeared before the same judge who had sentenced her. The judge asked Frances if she had started a fight. Yes, I was fighting for my country and for myself. The judge asked if she had had anything to drink since the last time she had appeared before the court. I drank everything I could get, including Benzedrine. The judge reminded her that she had been ordered to abstain from alcohol. Listen, I get liquor in my milk, I get liquor in my coffee, and in my orange juice. What do you expect me to do, starve to death? The judge ordered that Frances be remanded to jail to start serving her six-month sentence immediately. This apparently was enough to snap Frances out of fucking around mode and got her asking the questions she probably should have led with about her lack of phone call and her non-existent lawyer. What I want to know is do I have any civil rights? When she didn't get an answer... Francis started throwing punches. Cops piled on top of her. Eventually, they wrangled Francis Farmer into a straitjacket. According to multiple reports, she was dragged off screaming this. Have you ever had a broken heart? Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue. 
and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. As a way of avoiding jail time, her family convinced the court to allow Frances to start serving her sentence in a private sanitarium. Eventually, her lawyer father managed to get Frances assigned to the legal custody of her mother, who put her 30-year-old daughter on a train back to her hometown of Seattle and eventually had her committed to the Western State Mental Hospital. Three months later, Frances was released, supposedly cured, And yet she'd end up back at the same asylum for two more stints over the next six years, the longest stretch beginning in December 1946. She was finally discharged in 1950, but she was still legally the ward of her mother. Frances Farmer finally won her civil rights back in court in 1953. And after that, her would-be Hollywood comeback was pegged to a 1957 appearance on This Is Your Life, making her a pioneer in the art of celebrity televised atonement but she was perhaps too ahead of her time, and opportunities didn't come pouring in. She married and divorced, twice. She moved to Indianapolis, where for a while she hosted an afternoon TV show. She acted in stage productions and a few TV specials. There was, reportedly, a lot of drinking. According to one anecdote, the only three things she kept in her fridge were beer, vodka, and dog food and at least one other run-in with the law. In 1968, Farmer was given a $3,500 advance on her autobiography. She started collaborating with ghostwriter Lois Kibbe, and also her best friend and roommate, Jean Ratcliffe. Frances started drunkenly tape-recording her memories, reading aloud from her own medical transcripts, sobbing. Then, before a first draft could be finished, Frances Farmer got cancer. She died in 1970 at the age of 56. Everything I've just told you is, as far as I can tell, verifiably true. It's all information that's in public records and or was reported by multiple sources at the time of the events. It's after Farmer dies that the narrative of what happened when she was alive starts to become complicated. And the complication begins in 1972 with the publication of a tome purporting to be Francis Farmer's autobiography. Will There Really Be a Morning is a nearly 400-page saga giving highly dramatic treatment to Farmer's life in and out of Hollywood, framed by lurid and harrowing depictions of her near-death experiences inside the mental hospital. The book was cobbled together after Farmer's death by Farmer's live-in bestie, Jean Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe knew Farmer better than anyone at the end of her life. However, Ratcliffe had also been tasked with paying back the $3,500 advance that Farmer had been paid for the autobiography that she would never herself finish. So Ratcliffe asked ghostwriter Lois Kibbe to send her the research material she had been using to fuel the now-abandoned manuscript, including Francis's tape-recorded confessions. Ratcliffe then apparently formed a narrative, structuring Farmer's actual memories as flashbacks in between episodes of harrowing abuse in the asylum. Here's how Will There Really Be a Morning begins. For eight years I was an inmate in a state asylum for the insane. During those years I passed through such unbearable terror that I deteriorated into a wild, frightened creature intent only on survival. And I survived. I was raped by orderlies, was gnawed on by rats, and poisoned by tainted food. 
and I survived. I was chained in padded cells, strapped into straitjackets, and half drowned in ice baths. And I survived. The asylum itself was a steel trap, and I was not released from its jaws alive and victorious. I crawled out, mutilated, whimpering, and terribly alone. But I did survive. According to the Internet's foremost Francis Farmer truther, a musician named Jeffrey Kaufman who maintains a page on his website to debunk assorted Francis Farmer myths, this opening and much of the autobio's more extreme and dramatic claims were invented by the cash-poor Ratcliffe in the hopes of making sure the book first got published and then netted a lucrative movie deal. It worked, and Will There Really Be a Morning was championed as a warts-and-all tell-all from beyond the grave. My paperback copy has a pull quote from Rex Reed on the front. So says the esteemed film critic, If you never read anything else by an actress, read this one. So that's 1972. In 1975, child star turned experimental filmmaker Kenneth Anger publishes a spectacular scrapbook of celebrity half-truths and urban legends called Hollywood Babylon. Anger's brief chapter on Frances Farmer focuses mostly on her drunken arrest and her lifelong talent for giving good, bitchy pull quotes, but Anger makes two contributions of value to the developing Frances as martyr canon. He publishes photos of her taken in jail, and he brands her St. Francis, patron of, quote, all of the Hollywood Magdalenes who have drunk at the well of madness. Fast forward another three years, and we come to the publication of what no less an expert than Kurt Cobain called the best book on Francis Farmer, Shadowland, in which author William Arnold exposes Farmer's autobiography as the fraud it was, and describes his intrepid reporter's quest to uncover the truth about what really happened to Farmer when she was locked up out of sight. That truth, he claims, is that at Western State Hospital, Frances Farmer was secretly given a transorbital lobotomy, which rendered her a zombie for the rest of her days. In that interview with Melody Maker, Kurt Cobain misidentifies Arnold as a private investigator. In fact, William Arnold was a film critic with the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, and he had ties to Scientology. In the late 1970s, around the time Arnold was working on his book, the Church of Scientology was ramping up their efforts to discredit the psychiatric community. Before Shadowland was published, the Scientology magazine Freedom published an interview with Arnold in which Francis Farmer was held up as a victim of psychiatric abuses. And in the acknowledgments to Shadowland, Arnold thanks his, quote, personal friend, Stephen R. Hurd of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights for his help researching, quote, the truth in this case. Arnold doesn't mention that the Citizens Commission on Human Rights is in fact a Scientology front group, which has tried to blame psychiatry for everything from the Holocaust to Columbine. After Arnold's book was published, Scientology started using Farmer as the literal poster child for their psychiatry takedown. Scientology shill or not, Arnold had no solid documentation for his claim that Farmer had been lobotomized. Yes, there were lobotomies done at that hospital by Walter Freeman, the doctor Arnold credits for operating on Farmer. But we know this because the hospital was proud of it. They saw lobotomy as a groundbreaking procedure, they kept copious records, and they frequently sought publicity. They would have been ecstatic to publicize having lobotomized a celebrity, especially if it had worked. 
but there is no record of Farmer having been operated on while at the hospital. And while there are many claims of horror testified to by Francis or invented by Ratcliffe in mourning, including that Farmer was nearly starved and frozen to death and made into a sex slave, the autobiography never claimed she was lobotomized. If it happened, why would she and or Ratcliffe be silent about it? William Arnold may be the first person to claim that Farmer was lobotomized, but the actual image of an ice pick being hammered through her once luminous right eye became indelible thanks to Francis, the 1982 biopic starring Jessica Lange, directed by Graham Clifford. Francis freely mixes fact with bullshit. On the director's commentary on the DVD, director Clifford expends much energy defending the inclusion of Sam Shepard's character, Harry, a male savior slash love interest who had been based on the testimony of a guy named Stuart Jacobson, who claimed to have had an on-off relationship with Francis Farmer. These claims were convenient for the filmmakers, who needed to find some way to inject hope and romance into Farmer's otherwise relentlessly bleak story, which notably lacked for compassionate male attention. But several people close to Farmer have gone on the record saying that if Farmer had been involved with a real Stuart Jacobson, they had never heard anything about it. At one point on his commentary track, Clifford acknowledges that truth-telling wasn't exactly his number one priority. You're trying to remain as factually accurate as you can. You tend to get bogged down. In the audience isn't going to give two hoots about you know. Mm-hmm. All they want is a dramatic story that holds their attention. If it's based on fact, that's fine, but they don't want to be nickeled and dimed to death with fact. They want a good story. That audience certainly got its money worth when it came to Francis's lobotomy scene, which functions as the climax of the biopic, with the operation posited as the final rite of soul-crushing passage before Farmer was allowed to finally leave the asylum for good. In reality, because her parents had legal custody over her and they had had Farmer committed, all they had to do was write a letter requesting her release, which her father finally did in 1950, so that his daughter could come home and care for her now sickly mother. So the lobotomy scene in the movie is totally made up. But it was made up by William Arnold, not any of Francis's three credited screenwriters. In fact, the producers of the movie, Brooks Film, the Brooks being Mel Brooks, were in talks with Arnold about acquiring the rights to Shadowland, but they went ahead and made the movie without him, without crediting him, and without paying him. So... Arnold sued. But here's the thing. You can't sue someone for copyright infringement if they make a movie based on the same true events you wrote about in a book. You can't claim copyright to the public record or to widely acknowledged history. But if you were to, say, make up stories about a historical figure and publish them in a book, and someone then made a movie dramatizing the events you made up, Well, then you could sue the shit out of them. But in doing so, you'd have to publicly acknowledge your fictionalizations. So when William Arnold brought his copyright infringement lawsuit against Brooks Film, he made the case that Francis, a Hollywood film presented as a fictionalized dramatization based on true events, was in fact based on inventions that Arnold himself had made in Shadowland, his book marketed as, and heretofore purported to be, an investigative biography. The judge in the case acknowledged that the movie's fictions were the same as Arnold's fictions. And yet, he still decided against Arnold, 
apparently because he was so enraged by the author's blatant attempt to sell fiction as fact, and then reverse course to follow the money. The judge was apparently alone in his outrage. The lawsuit did nothing to puncture the myth that Francis Farmer had been lobotomized, and to the extent that word even got out that Arnold's supposed biography was in fact fictionalized propaganda, that word was counteracted by Francis Farmer obsessives like Cobain, who took it as gospel. Now, okay, it's tough to get too precious about the distinction between truth and fiction when you're talking about old Hollywood stars, or even new Hollywood stars for that matter. But back in Farmer's Day, studio publicity departments not only invented new identities for contract players, but they also frequently erased and rewrote a star's prehistory, the story of what happened before they became famous, to better fit the lie of the star's invented persona. And tabloids were in the business of counteracting official stories with scandalous alternative narratives. When everyone's potentially lying, it's the best story that usually sticks. But Farmer is, as far as I can tell, unique. Let's put aside the Nirvana connection. Kurt and Courtney's propagation of the Farmer lobotomy myth wasn't consciously wrongheaded, even if it is an ironic example of the kind of unconfirmed biased journalism that they were usually invoking Farmer in part to rally against. But aside from that, the three major sources through which the Farmer story has been disseminated, being Shadowland, the movie Francis, and Will There Really Be a Morning, These were all fictionalized, not to protect the interests of Frances Farmer herself, but to serve the individual agendas of whoever was doing the fictionalizing. Even if he hadn't been a pawn of Scientology, Arnold, like Gene Ratcliffe, clearly had an interest in branding Farmer as a victim of more extreme horrors than the real horrors borne out by the facts, in order to assure that their books would net movie rights money. This is a shitty thing to do. But it's just garden variety opportunism. The fictionalizations in the biopic are a little different. Francis is a rise and tragic fall of a star story, in which individual tragedy is recycled into grand Hollywood mythology, not unlike Sunset Boulevard, A Star is Born, or The Bad and the Beautiful. Except that those movies are masterpieces and Francis is not. But this genre has the veneer of being brave and self-exposing, as though one band of filmmakers are daring to step away from the pack and pull back the curtain to reveal the true rot of the industry that supports them. They have the veneer of being dangerous. But actually, they're not. Actually, these movies are completely self-serving and self-congratulatory. They promote the idea that Hollywood is self-aware and even cynical about its ability to destroy lives while recycling everyday tragedy into new entertainment products. And it's good for business. The darker these stories go, the more they compel the audience to sympathize with the victims, usually women, of Hollywood's machinery. And then that pathos becomes a product that helps to publicize other products. But in the case of Frances Farmer, the pathos is the only product. The legend of her life off-camera is able to attract and hold so much interest, in part because the actual movies she made don't distract from it. For the most part, they were pretty terrible and have been deservedly forgotten. Come and Get It is probably the best of them, and it's an okay showcase for Farmer's unique screen presence, particularly early in the film when she's a salty singing saloon girl, sort of an all-American Marlena Dietrich. But there's no question that Farmer never got a decent movie vehicle in which to showcase what she could do. Meanwhile, the Jessica Lange Francis, while false and silly in a lot of areas, 
is fun to watch because it's such an extreme and overdone example of Hollywood in glossy self-mythology mode. On the same score, will there really be a morning? Maybe a sham, but it's a hell of a beach read. And it's not entirely unmoving. There's this one chapter in which during one of her stints home from the asylum, Frances finds a folder of her own press clippings hidden away in her mother's drawer. She flips through it, marveling at all the things she's supposed to have said that she doesn't remember having said. The news stories describing things like boycotting Japanese silk in solidarity with the Allies that she's pretty sure she had never done. Her own post-traumatic amnesia of real events collides with the fake events routinely published by the Hollywood gossip press, and she starts to question her grasp on reality. And then there are the pictures. She looks at these pictures of herself, and she realizes that they are of her, but she feels like she's looking at a stranger. She realizes that her own likeness has been robbed away from her. Now, maybe this moment of consciousness never happened. Maybe Jane Ratcliffe made it up. Probably, Jane Ratcliffe made it up. But in some sense, it's the truest and most honest moment in all of the farmerology. In documenting Frances Farmer's breakdown, the media had turned this real woman's trauma into just another consumable Hollywood drama, and it turned Frances herself into a character that was paradoxically stronger and more substantive than any of the roles offered to her in actual Hollywood movies. Imagine looking at these clippings and understanding in a second that this image of you kicking and screaming in a courtroom would outlast any of those cheesecake publicity photos you'd reluctantly posed for, that this is the role, which you never signed up to play, that would become the only role you'd be remembered for. It might be enough to drive a gal insane. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth, that's me. Our guest stars included Brian Clark as Kurt Cobain, Nora Zetner as Frances Farmer, and as Rex Reed, Noah Segan. You can find us on iTunes, just search You Must Remember This, and please rate and review us there if you can. You can find more episodes and more information about this episode at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, and follow me on Twitter at Karina Longworth. Join us next time for another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. 
Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.